Welcome to the Mojo Maker for Women in Tech podcast, where you will learn career strategies and techniques to help you break down barriers, make more money, and thrive in your tech life at work and at home. Technology has never been more mission critical to our online stay-at-home world, and you are the key to its success. You'll hear from diverse women in tech as well as experts who share both personal and professional strategies so you can transform your work and your workplace from the inside out. I'm Karen Morstel, former Silicon Valley tech leader and serial CISO for iconic brands like AT&T Wireless, Microsoft, and Russell Investments. I hope you will join me in my mission and message of resilience and transformation to make an inclusive and equitable tech industry. If you find this show helpful, please leave us a like and share it. And don't forget to hurry over to createyourleadingedge.com to join innovative and affordable group coaching for women in tech on your terms. And now on to Mojo Maker for Women in Tech. COVID outbreak, my guest, cybersecurity expert Alyssa Miller and I had a fascinating conversation about the similarities we found in convincing people to take action, whether it is responding in a pandemic or taking proactive measures for protecting digital assets. I think you'll enjoy this. Listen in. Alyssa, thank you so much. I'm excited that we got a chance to do this, to record this podcast. You already have other platforms and a podcast here on ITSP Magazine that you have with Chloe and and others. So I appreciate the time you're taking to join me today. Well, yeah, I appreciate you having me on for sure. Always a always a pleasure to have conversations with folks in the in our industry and get out and spread a message to the community. We met at Diana Initiative. I think that was the first time we met, and we've had I think stayed in touch a little bit on social media. So that's been something I've enjoyed quite a bit and following you a little bit and getting to know kind of your perspective. So recently you and I had another conversation kind of bouncing around the idea about doing this podcast mm-hmm. and came up with some a metaphor, I think, in that conversation that we're still putting all of the flesh on the bones, but I'd love to bounce that around here on the call if that's okay with you, because I think yeah. your perspective on that's going to be great. Yeah, I would happily discuss it. I think it was kind of a one of those serendipitous moments where things just kind of came together and it was like, yeah, wow, this is a, a metaphor that actually, and as we'll get into almost unfortunately, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. So let's just leave everybody hanging there for just a second about <laughs> what this metaphor is going to be because I'd love you to just tell me a little bit about how you got into cyber and sort of your perspective on the industry as a whole. And I don't know, some of the things that you think we can do. Well, let's just hold that off. Some of the things we're going to talk about is how we can make it better. And that all has to do with our metaphor. (laughs) (laughs) We'll save that yet. (laughs) Yeah. Tell me a little bit about you. Yeah. So how I got into cyber, I always tell people, uh, completely fell into it. So I can go back a long ways. I identify myself as a hacker, first and foremost. And that just goes back to that's a part of my identity. When I was a young child, like four years old, I was that kid that took all my toys apart to try to figure out how they work. 
And then at the age of 12, I was really liking computers. I had been watching Mr. Wizard for years. And every time they did something with his computer, I was like, oh, I want one of those. And, you know, we had them at school, whatever. But at 12 years old, I saved up enough money and I bought myself a computer. Taught myself how to program in basic. I also taught myself (laughs) a little bit about asynchronous modem communications and might have done a few things that are questionable as far as their legality. Today, those companies aren't in business anymore, so you know. Yeah. And yeah. I was 12, so come on, give me a break, FBI. But no, seriously, the odd thing, though, is as much as I was into computers, I never really saw it as a career. And in fact, when I went to Marquette University, it was as a pre-med major. But after about three semesters of college chemistry, I pretty well figured out that pre-med was not where I wanted to be. I was not going to be a doctor. That was pretty clear. And so I had to find a new major. And I started looking through the course catalog, trying to figure out, okay, what am I going to do now? And came across their computer science degree, which of course was all about programming. And I'm sitting there, what, 19 years old, looking at this 20 years old, whatever I was, looking at this like, well, I already know how to program. I love computers. This is going to be an easy way to go. I should just do this. So I did. And I was very fortunate because I got into that program. At this point, I was working part-time as a help desk analyst or whatever you want to call it, or I shouldn't say help desk, tech support analyst for a company in Mequon, Wisconsin that made networking software. You know, so I had some exposure to like our development teams and I did some work with the QA team and whatever, but this was also during the dot-com boom. And I ended up finding a full-time job as a programmer for a local fintech company, what we call them today, while I was still going to school. So I had no degree. I'm going to school for computer science, but I'm already working full-time as a programmer. And so, yeah, I guess I actually would have been when I was 19. And so I spent nine years as a developer in this organization before a manager from our information security team came to me and she's, she asked me if I wanted to join her security test team, which was essentially their penetration testing team. And I told her point blank, like, I don't know anything about that. I don't know what pen testing really is. I mean, I know what it is, but I don't know how to do it. And you'll figure it out. You're smart. That's why I want you to join my team. Okay. And so, yeah, I mean, I just it really fell into it and it took off from there. I spent six years in that organization, ended up leading that team. We were responsible for all the network pen testing, the application pen testing, and the vulnerability management on the back end. So, I mean, I pretty young in my career got a lot of experience running the entire vulnerability management program for a Fortune 100 financial technologies company. And I, Boy, looking back on the dates of that, I mean, my God, I was, was I even in my 30s yet? I don't even think so. So, I mean, you know, a lot of, a lot of experience really, really fast. And so I guess by the end of it, I was in my 30s. But yeah, so very early in my career. And then, you know, I'd been with that company now 15 years and decided, all right, I want to see what the rest of the world is doing. And then I got into consulting and did that for a number of years. And most recently now... I started working for a company called Sneak, who's based in London, and we are 100% a, we create developer software to help developers secure their software 
in like a DevOps pipeline. And so all stuff that I definitely very much a, a believer in. And that's brought me to where I'm at today. You know what I love? There's many things I love about that story, but two things really jumped out at me as you were telling it. And one of them is, is that you had a manager who believed in your ability to learn what you needed to know, not said, you have to have this long list of credentials before I'm even going to let you try. I think that's amazing. And I think we need a whole lot more of that. In fact, my experience in having teams, cybersecurity teams in the 90s and and beyond. We didn't have cybersecurity training. (laughs) The best people were people who knew computers and loved computers and were curious about how they worked and knew how to kind of explore that kind of aspect, the technical aspect of things. So that's very cool. The other thing I love about it is that you were hesitant and she said, it's going to be fine. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. And honestly, you've touched on a point that I guess I never, well, I kind of, I've, I've known and I've acknowledged, but I never looked at it really as it applied to myself. And that is, I'm a big proponent of leaders, whether it's in security or anywhere else, being very conscious and deliberate in identifying the potential of their people. So you said something that's really key. I think it goes to the heart of some of the issues that we have in security right now where we're talking about skills gaps and stuff. We are so focused now on finding that quote unquote ready-made resource that's going to fill that role, right? Like we're so, like you said, you got to have this laundry list of qualifications. You have to have done all of this already. And we even see that in like the promotions process. I've experienced that myself where, you know, I've gone for a role that I know I can absolutely crush. Like I am ready to go. I'm energized for it. And I've been turned down because same thing, they were looking for that I had already done the responsibilities that that role entails. It's like you can't hire people that way. People don't change jobs, or in this case, go for promotions. They're going to be lateral moves. It doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a big problem for us in security is we expect that. We expect the people who come in that maybe it's because we think that they're going to change for more money, but we think they're just going to take the same job again. No, people want to grow. And if we can't recognize that, hey, You've done these things which show you have the potential to really do this. So even though you haven't done this particular skill yet, you're the kind of person I can see it in just other things that you do. And so, yeah, I'm actually really glad you brought that point up because I guess I've acknowledged that as myself having been a leader for many years, but never really thought about how that actually applied to me. Yeah, it sounds like it changed the trajectory of your entire career. Yeah, very much so. And and it does strike me that that behavior about having to have somebody kind of have an ironclad background before they're given the opportunity to do the job either means that the management isn't comfortable being able to train the people that they need to bring in or the job categories and the job descriptions are being written by insurance companies. I think it's some of both, for sure. Maybe so, um, yeah. Maybe you know, so. I, there's, well, I mean, there's no secret that some of these job descriptions are just terrible. 
Um, I mean, there's, there's a certain grocery store chain that shall remain nameless who, I mean, they become Twitter famous for how awful some of their job descriptions are, where it's just under requirements. So things that by EEOC laws, you know, are things that you have to fill. They have this laundry list of things that it's like, okay, no human being in the world is going to be able to check those boxes. Right. So why are they listed as requirements? You know, so we we could go on for days about that whole mess. Well, uh, I'm going to look for the segue there because, because I think honestly, it speaks to fear. Yeah, and it, does. it speaks to wanting to kind of cover your bases. And now that we're in kind of this new world, I will call it, I don't know what the right word is to describe what we're going through right now, but in this COVID-19 world, as you and I were kind of talking about that, I think we were sort of talking about what is it about people, right? I was mentioning to you the situation that was happening here where I live in Douglas County, Colorado which was the things that we ran out of were brisket, toilet paper, and guns. (laughs) And that's not a ding on Douglas County, Colorado. We're going to have a great old throwdown here. But uh, I would say it was this irrational. We were talking about this irrational reaction. And then what happened after that? If you want to, I'll let you pop the, the great revelation here about the metaphor that we realized at the moment was. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, we started talking about just that the whole fear reaction and how people seem to, when they get into these scary moments where it's, it's something that they don't feel like they have control of, they tend to do one of two things. They either take no action because they get scared into this fight or flight thing and they kind of freeze up and do nothing, or they do things that seem completely irrational and counterproductive. Mm-hmm. And that's what we saw with COVID-19 is, okay, you know, people had no control over this virus. They had no control over all the things that were going on. So what did they put their minds to? Well, I'm going to go buy a bunch of toilet paper and <laughs> I'm going to buy up all the nine millimeter ammunition I can find because that's something I can control. and. So I know we started talking more about that and just the reactions to how when there's all this fear, uncertainty, and doubt, people don't act rationally and tend to act in ways that are counterproductive or take no action at all and stick with the status quo. So we see all the people going out, ignoring these shelter-in-place orders, and I think from there is when we started to realize, like, wait a minute. Whoa, what does this sound like? (laughs) In the face of threats that we can't control and can't see and have a hard time wrapping our minds around, boy, that sounds a whole lot like what we've been doing for the last couple decades in security. Right. Yeah. I know. Like, whoa. (laughs) I mean, totally earth shattering when we had that revelation. Like, it is the exact perfect metaphor looking at the way people have reacted or not reacted, including the United States federal government, to this thing, and where on one hand you had infectious disease experts and epidemiologists and biologists warning up and down about how horrible this thing was, and on the other side you had the people who just didn't buy it, who didn't believe it. Well, and, and we, we also... Up. 
We also had, without naming anything, any governments in particular, uh, reports getting squelched about what was really going on. So it was a little bit confusing, right? Yeah, multiple governments were doing that. So Not just ones that we're familiar with. Yeah, yeah. So in cyber, I think the revelation and the thing that you and I really wanted to kind of bring out, and we're going to post all of this when we get this paper finalized, we'll get this posted up on LinkedIn so people can can kind of see the whole detail of it. Well, I think maybe we should post it on ITSP Magazine. Maybe that's a good place to put it. But at any rate, the whole idea about this threat you can't see And we know, and we can measure, we can see the graph, the exponential growth of a zero-day attack that we don't have any defenses for, very much like this virus, that spreads rapidly throughout the infrastructure. And we can see that. We can give all kinds of reports about that, and it falls on kind of deaf ears. There's a few sectors that, of course, are much more seasoned about this and are very responsive to it. But... More than not, I hear from professionals who are in the field that they're having a hard time getting people to believe how bad the situation is. Yeah. And I really think for everybody who's listening, one of the things that we really wanted to kind of bring out here was how similar that is to the current environment. And it seems to be a study in human nature. That this isn't so much of a technological problem as a human problem of our reluctance to like stare down the gun barrel basically at the problem and say, yep, that's a really big problem and we need to do something about it. Well, and the thing is it comes back to neuroscience, right? And this is actually something I've studied a little bit because I've actually delivered some talks on what it is that we as security professionals have done to kind of contribute to the problem, right? We, for years and years and years, kind of to your point, have leveraged FUD. It's fear, uncertainty, doubt is how we've tried to sell this. We've told told executives, business executives for years and years, this is this big, horrible thing. It's this big, nebulous thing that we can't quite put our finger on completely, but we've got to defend ourselves because it's going to be awful. But then we don't really come at it with a context that they understand. And so the thing is, you know, what neuroscience shows us, and there's a ton of studies behind this, that when we're scared, we have that fight or flight reaction, right? If I want to motivate somebody to not do something, like if I want to motivate a kid to not touch a hot stove, the best thing I can do is scare them about what will happen if they touch a hot stove. That works. When I scare you, that's going to convince you to not do something. Yeah. But conversely, Mm -hmm. if what I want to do is motivate you to action, the very worst thing I can do is try to scare you because that motivates you to inaction. If I want to motivate you to action, I have to put a reward out there. I have to sell you on something that is going to be a benefit of you. If you install, if you invest in this CASB solution to protect our cloud environment, it's going to mean we're going to save this much money or we're going to be able to launch this new line of service or whatever. You know, we can invest in this whole new service line, whatever it is. Give that executive, give those business leaders something to sink their teeth into that, okay, if I do this, I'm going to get this tangible benefit. 
Now, we tried to get better with that. And Bruce Schneier wrote an epic blog on this a number of years ago about just the idea of quantifying risk and how there's not really an ROI when you invest in security. It's not an investment. But how we can quantify risk and leverage some of these familiar terms that we talk about with annualized loss expectancy and all these things. Yeah. But even that remains pretty nebulous. Reducing risk is not really a carrot to put out there, right? The carrot is, hey, we're going to save money, which means now I can invest that elsewhere. We're going to make new money or we're going to open up a new innovative line of business. Right. And that's what motivates people. Right. And quite honestly, if you look, I'm going to try really hard not to get political about this, but if you look at this objectively and you look at the current president and what motivates him, had health professionals come to him early on and said, it's something to the effect of, hey, if you do this, you could be like a total hero and everybody's going to love you. He'd ate that up. But instead, what did they tell him? They said, oh my gosh, the world is going to end. All this horrible stuff can happen if you don't do something. Well, and he reacted like this executives react when we come to them with overwhelmingly bad news. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, I think that's what's so interesting to me is the lessons that we can learn from this. I think I saw a headline just before we got on today that said, if we did nothing, at least 2 million Americans are going to die from this virus. That's a fear, uncertainty, and doubt number that Mm -hmm. is just kind of like so far outside of my realm of reality of everything I've ever known that it's a little bit hard for me to wrap my head around. And other than hunkering down and not touching anything and not going anywhere, which is essentially what kind of what we're all doing right now, it's hard to know what to do to be helpful. And thank God there are people who are stepping up and saying things like, I'm making masks, I'm repurposing my manufacturing facility to make ventilators. I'm, you know, there are people who are stepping up to do that. But I think by and large, the norm is people are reacting like buying the toilet paper and the brisket and the nine millimeter ammunition. I think that's what we're seeing, right? That's the that's one of the very visible things. It kind of brings out either the heroes in us or the fear in us. And there kind of isn't, and then there's probably a whole bunch in the middle, right? Yeah, um, I, I think that's fair. It, it takes all of us a little while to, to deal with that situation and react rationally, right? I mean, the thing is, especially when it's FUD, the first thing you get when things are overwhelming like that is you do get that overwhelming fear. And you react emotionally and you do silly things like going and buying all this toilet paper. Mm -hmm. And then after you have that time to sit down and then your brain catches up and you start to think rationally, well, now, yeah, you realize, okay, I didn't need to buy 480 rolls of toilet paper. I probably could have bought 124 pack and been fine for a long time. What I should have been doing was maybe buying some non-perishables in case I have to go for a little while without shopping and buying fresh brisket probably is not the right plan either because <laughs> that's a perishable item. And, you know, I mean, things like that, but it takes people a little while for their brains to catch up, to get past that emotional reaction and get to more of a logical, reasonable 
sensible reaction where we're actually doing things that make sense. Back in the days in the 90s when I worked at Stanford Research Institute, those were in the days when network intrusion detection was new and it was a big fancy thing. And a lot of people who were starting to get very concerned about cybersecurity, and we had a few things going on in those days. That's when hacktivism was really getting going. And we had the Kosovo crisis and there was a hacker component associated with all of that. And we coined a term uh, back then, I coined a term back then called, we have to be careful not to put steel doors on grass shacks. Yeah. In other words, we either go for something that makes no sense whatsoever because A, we know how to obtain it and B, we can afford it. <laughs> or we go to something that we bypass all the basic cyber hygiene and we go straight for the flashy cybersecurity technology of the year and try to implement that and are then disappointed when it doesn't really solve our problem. So what I'm hoping, and maybe there'll be some feedback here on the podcast because we're going to have to wrap it up here in a little bit, but I would love for people to kind of take a look at this and make the, their observations. I would say try to keep it neutral as far as finger pointing or blame, but recognizing that this is a definitely a phenomena that we have been dealing with for decades and as cybersecurity professionals, quite to the consternation of every single one of us. And we haven't cracked the nut yet, but what we're seeing right in front of us is a full-blown worldwide reaction to an unseen threat that is not unlike the kind of thing that we've been trying to describe to people for decades on the non-biological side. Yeah, it'd be, and, it'd be wonderful to see what people have come up with or what their observations of that look like and what they think we can do to solve it. Because I don't think we have time to do that here. We'll have to come back to this no. and try to come up with some solutions. <laughs> no, but you, you did bring up a good point. And that is, we also, and I, I think more and more, I'm starting to see this in the community, right? Like I am seeing the community get better about this. And that's just acknowledging our own culpability in this, Right. And, and that kind of what I was getting to before is we have to acknowledge that we are the experts in security. It is our job to sell this information, essentially, to these business leaders and executives. But it's not just putting the information out there. It's understanding, having the emotional intelligence, the capable leadership to understand how should I be talking to these people to play to their emotions, to play to their motivations, and to bring this to them in a way that matches up the same way that you know the CFO comes to the CEO with financial numbers? How does he? He doesn't just walk in there and start talking a bunch of gap terminology and, and things like that because that's not what the CEO needs, right? And I think it's why CISOs still get a bad rap from the C-suite. Yeah. Why we're still looked at as these very, you know, CISOs are looked at as very technical. Yeah. And a lot of times, I mean, I just had a conversation earlier this week with a CISO about exactly this, you know, that all too often they don't get seen as business people. And it's because we haven't traditionally done that. We've always come with the technical story, the technical answers to the problems rather than speaking in business terms. 
So as we seek to get people to kind of weigh in on this whole idea, this little metaphor that we've come up with that, you know, definitely felt really smart when we, when we came <laughs> up with it and it still does. I think it's a perfect metaphor. Yeah. I want people to think about that. Okay. What could we as security professionals be doing better? It's yeah. not that the executives are stupid or they don't believe us or that it's, we haven't done a good job of bringing the correct story to them. So how do we get that right story in front of them? Exactly. We need to recognize that the person we're talking to is seeing things at a 30,000 foot level. And then we have to figure out a way to distill our presentation to them in 30,000 foot level terms, right? So they fit into the bigger picture. And then we can dive down into the, all of the details that are needed for action because they're clearly needed but yeah, we, I love that. I think as you're watching, so I guess the word is to everybody is, as you're watching this unfold, and it is certainly still unfolding at the time we're recording this, we don't really know how this is all going to play out and when. We just found out we have to stay, what, stay at home order until April 30th at least. So that's new news. Anyway, we don't know how it's going to unfold. But one of the things that we can do as we watch it unfold is to say, what can I learn from this and how does this apply to the way I'm going to do my job? And when I see, oh gosh, they could have done that so much better, we can go, how could we do our piece relative to the cybersecurity threat uh, reporting and action plan designing? How could we do that better? So we have a way to kind of integrate all of these things that we're seeing and turn them into a positive. How's that? (laughs) I can see you come out of it for sure. Right. And of course it extends beyond even cybersecurity. I mean, we go all through tech with working from home and all the other things that are where we have the opportunity to see how we could do better in all of these cases, given, you know, the opportunity that's been thrust on us now. So yeah, yeah, that's my motto. You get lemons, you make lemonade, right? Yeah. So that's... <laughs> Pivot and adapt. That's, yeah, I mean, that's, that's right. the name roll of the game. It. You got to roll with it. Company. I think the adversity is, adversity is our best teacher, for sure. So this is a great opportunity for us to all get our PhD in how we mm-hmm. talk about crisis to management. For sure. Alyssa, thank you. It's so great to see you again and to chat and catch up. And so we'll keep in touch and keep sending me good ideas and I'll keep watching you on Twitter and it's all good stuff. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you again for having me on. I really appreciate it. It's enjoyable as always talking with you. So hopefully we'll see some productive discussion come our way after this. That would be the best thing. I hope so, you guys. Whoever's listening, you make sure you put some comments out here because we want to see. Or twi- what's your Twitter handle? Just so everybody everybody on the call, I'm sure, knows. But why don't you just let yeah, me know? I don't know if they all know. but no. I, so, yeah, you can find me on Twitter. It's Alyssa M underscore InfoSec. So it's A-L-Y-S-S-A-M underscore InfoSec. Okay, perfect. And I'm at Karen Morstel. So we want to see what you have to say. <laughs> Okay, keep the conversation going. Thanks, Alyssa. Have a great rest of your evening. Yeah, you too. Thanks, Karen. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. That's it for today's show. Mojo Maker for Women in Tech podcast is part of the ecosystem of knowledge sharing and affordable group coaching 
to help reverse the trend of women leaving tech and to help diverse women in male-dominated industries get the visibility, opportunities, and compensation they deserve. Be sure to check out our five-day challenge by visiting us online at createyourleadingedge.com. Like what you hear? Subscribe, share, or leave a review wherever you listen to the show. We'll be back again next week. Be well, stay strong, and remember, be an ally. Thank you.